Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. This is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine, and I'm sitting at the editor's desk as the next installment of the editor's desk podcast. And I have with me Scott Yenar, professor of political science at Boise State University. And we are going to talk about his article from the January 2023 issue. And the title of his piece is, and says it all, Anatomy of a Cancellation. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks for having me, Rusty. It all began at the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando on Halloween 2021. So, like, you triggered some people. <laughs> Although not at first, you say. But what, what was the presenting issue? Yeah, I uh, was talking about how feminism and great nations don't go together because great nations require great families and feminism is something that detracts from our ability to have lots of great families. And uh, I said certain things about what, hap- uh, about what happens to women when they embrace feminism that were uh, you know, not received well. Uh, I called women <laughs> uh, medicated, meddlesome, and quarrelsome, or more medicated, meddlesome, and quarrelsome than they need to be in the speech. And I also tried to paint uh, the picture of what a post-feminist world would look like, where we would accept uh, that men and women basically play different roles in life, uh, at least have tendencies toward different roles. And I applied that to what the university might uh, look like. And those are the two things that uh, I think triggered the people the most in the speech. Of course, no one ever touches the larger issue whether or not great nations require great families and whether feminism makes great families more difficult to have. Um, They, I think, you know, focused on these subsidiary issues and uh, which, you know, are, are sideshows when it comes to the larger argument. The listeners ought to know that your book, Recovery of Family Life, is it Recovering Family Life or The Recovery of Family Life? The Recovery, yeah. The Recovery of Family Life, uh, which I found to be a a very helpful book where you argue that the male-female difference endures, but our way of that feminism and other aspects of the sexual revolution uh, form us to be male and female in new ways. And so your observations about uh, women being uh, more medicated, quarrelsome, and, and... Meddlesome, meddlesome meddlesome and quarrelsome than they need to be. You also have things to say about men also being deformed. And so there's a kind of equal opportunity um, a problem, so to speak, uh, as we go forward. But that really wasn't, as you pointed out, nobody really cared about that. Um, and you got back to, 
yeah, to Boise and you didn't think anything of it. And then a couple weeks later, dot, 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 things start to pop. Yeah. A couple weeks later, uh, there was Thanksgiving break and I started getting a bunch of emails that were kind of form emails, you know, talk, calling me names and saying they're going to do things to my family and, you know, uh, 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 challenging my manhood. And uh, I got about a half a dozen within a five minute span. And I knew that something big was going to be up because this had happened to me about four years ago when I wrote on transgender stuff. And, uh, and, you know, just uh, the number of phone calls, uh, the, the scale of the whole thing was maybe a tenfold increase from what it was five years ago. Um, a lot more emails, a lot more phone calls. There were attempts to hack my social media stuff. There were attempts to hack my financial accounts. Uh, they went after my wife on Facebook and my children. People who were not related to me, they went after, but they happened to have the same name as Yenner. <laughs> there aren't a lot of us. And um, so, you know, the, the whole scale of it was just a bigger, bigger deal. And while immediately the university said I had the right to say whatever I wanted, they also, um, you know, made sure that everyone knew that if they had been discriminated against, they should contact the university and that's when, like, the full-blown cancellation attempt was on when the university brought Title IX charges against me. They did not cover themselves in glory, the administration of Boise State University, did they? No, I mean, it, uh, it was kind of a transparent attempt to trump up charges against me uh, by soliciting charges from students. And they got what they wanted, and, uh, and a legal battle was then on uh, that— was about six weeks after the NatCon speech that I had given. The we we deliberately paired your account of your trials and tribulations and literal trial uh, under this Title IX rubric with an article in, in the same issue by Teresa Manning calling for the repeal of Title IX. I don't think I don't think most people really understand the. Uh, how powerful this vice is. And anybody that gets into that vice is very easily crushed. Um, so what is, what is Title IX? Yeah, Title IX was an amendment to the Education Acts that was passed in the early 70s that requires men and women to have equal opportunities in higher education. And it was immediately applied most famously, I think, to uh, sports where men had you know, a lot more players, a lot more slots available in the sports that they played. And, you know, within about five years, there was kind of a disparate impact analysis given to Title IX when it came to sports, that there needed to be uh, roughly the same number of women playing in sports as there were women enrolled at the school. And this, of course, sent shockwaves through all athletic departments because, there's no female football. There's a lot of football players. And uh, the effect of this over the course of, you know, the 80s and early 90s was the elimination of lots of male sports and the addition of lots of female sports. And uh, so beach volleyball was added. And uh, to go <laughs> along with volleyball and baseball and wrestling at various schools was cut. And uh, and that was kind of the way in which it manifested itself uh, for the first couple decades of its existence. 
And then uh, the question of what equal opportunity requires became the centerpiece of Title IX, and that meant equal learning environments. And equal learning environments is measured by whether or not there are, again, equal results. And so uh, during the Obama administration, they didn't exactly pass regulations, but they passed suggestions uh, through the Dear Colleague letters that they sent out. The so-called guidance, uh, uh, administrative guidance, yeah. And the guidance was that universities had to have uh, like tighter control over their environment so that women would feel welcomed and not harassed. And then women would be, the, the female students would be the judges of whether or not they were harassed and victimized on campus. And this has been um, like opened the door to lots of actions against professors all around the country. And uh, I just happen to be one of them. Right. I mean, I guess listeners probably are aware that this Title IX, these guidance letters led, uh, focused on um, basically the 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 culture of sex at uh, sexual acts at the universities and the uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of women that brought charges against guys that they had slept with, et cetera, et cetera. But you're pointing out that the kind of hostile environment concept that's in civil rights law started to be applied to the classroom. And and so Professor Yenner, he's saying these things about men and women. He's got his critiques of feminism. You know, this makes me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and I must, you know, it, it reveals a discriminatory heart so that anyone who thinks that feminism is generally on the net a very bad thing for the country um, must also discriminate against women in his classroom and how he grades and how he calls on them and how he distributes opportunity. And uh, so, you know, at the heart of it, it was when you say something, you must also act on the most radical basis of that something. And that's kind of the logic of the charges that were brought against me. Now, as you recount, because you had been through this before, you 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 turn out to keep very scrupulous records of your classroom activities. Uh, but that didn't seem to deter. Um, I mean, as you, as you say in your piece, uh, when they had their kangaroo court, um, the kangaroo had to slink out of the room because uh, it was just, you had all these records that indicated that in no way, shape, or form had you discriminated against women in any relevant sense as a teacher. Um, but it seems like they're just, they, I mean, they won't let this at rest. They keep asking for more and more accusations. Yeah, I mean, all of those things kind of happen at once. The first uh, set of charges that they made against me were all on the basis of discrimination that I graded females worse than males and that I called on females less frequently than males. And they used two classes, one that I was currently teaching in uh, 2021 and then one from a few years earlier. And they had gotten people to make charges in each of these cases. And uh, so the first thing I did was get an attorney and I raised some money from friends and I got an attorney and the attorney said, look, Boise State has a 90 day statute of limitations on accusations of this sort. So half of the charges made against you should be thrown out. And we sent a protest letter to the uh, fact that those charges should be thrown out. 
And the university said, we agree, they should be thrown out. And then they responded with a whole bunch of other charges. Like you said things in class that were bad. And uh, and I'm, I, I think I could say a little bit about that. You know, they uh, made charges in class that every time I talked about slavery, uh, that I pointed at black students who were in class and things like this. I mean, ridiculous charges. And uh, so, yeah, they, they brought back these other things. And this is where keeping scrupulous records helped. I mean, I could prove the discrimination stuff, no problem, uh, because I kind of keep track of who I call on. And I record every class that and, and keep it in an archive. Mm. So when they say that I said something, I can say, well, maybe I said those words, but here's the context and here's the educational reason for saying those words. And so I could respond in every case uh, to uh, the charges that were brought against me. Uh, my hearing only lasted about an hour and a half. And uh, they had talked to something like 30 uh, witnesses. They brought all these charges to me and I sat there and responded to the charges very quickly. And at the end of my hearing, and my attorney said that doesn't happen very often, she'd never seen it. Uh, they said, well, we're going to be clearing you of these charges. <laughs> and, um, and of course, clearing isn't really the right word. All they say is that there's insufficient evidence to continue with the investigation. Uh, that's what passes for exoneration in a Title IX hearing, uh, but I'll take it. Has it been ongoing since then? No, um, as luck would have it, I've been on sabbatical since then. <laughs> so uh, the nice thing about sabbatical is that I don't have any chance to so-called harass or discriminate against anyone, and I get a chance to write. One thing that comes out in your piece is the the way in which, aside from uh, church and close friends, people kind of fall away. Uh, I mean, no one's running up to say, I'm behind you. You know, certainly not in the academic context. Um, I mean, there's a lot of fear out there that somehow it's like once somebody gets lined up in the crosshairs of this sort of thing, they're like um, an unclean animal. You know, you're a source of pollution. And if I touch you, I too might get uh, somehow drawn into this um, this awful process. Yeah, I think that's really the most important effect um, not only for individuals, but for everyone who sees what happens. So uh, in my particular case, um, you know, I did some, I kind of do this for a living. You know, I, I study sex and gender. I write books on it. The books are not ill-received. You know, they've uh, been well-received over the course of time. I've won, award, won awards for my first book uh, on the topic and uh, from, you know, conventional places. And but, you know, when when I had when when the mob had come up against me or the swarm had come up against me, um, you know, everyone sees it and they realize that like that topic gets you in that kind of trouble. And so maybe only about 100 professors are canceled every year. Maybe the number is 50. Uh, the you know, the the estimates vary, but the effect of them is a total ripple effect. Uh, everyone who sees it knows that that is the kind of topic that can't be talked about. So uh, they won't be bringing it up. And you're going to get a lot more essays on uh, Aristotle's view of kingship and a lot fewer essays on anyone writing on sex and gender, unless it's very conventional and fits in with the uh, the feminist narrative. So yeah, it's... Uh, the the effects of this are way out of proportion to the kind of personal effects of it. It's like execution. Um, you know, it only takes a few executions to uh, 
cause people to like, whoa, uh, I'm definitely going to um, not talk about that anymore. So I, I, I mean, if you, I mean, you're, you're, you, you've got the courage of your convictions, um, and and you're a, you're a, a a tenured professor, and as you say, you've you've achieved a a good a good degree of uh, of professional acclaim and success. But boy, if you're an untenured junior faculty member, I mean, I. I, I agree. It seems to me that that, however, you, even if they did not succeed in getting you fired from the Boise State University, those who assembled all these um, accusations and so forth, they did succeed in creating a climate of fear at Boise State and, and elsewhere. And elsewhere, yeah. I mean, what what uh, professor in his right mind would do the same thing that I did, um, unless he, you know, wants the conflict. Right. Well, I, I mean, I've, I think that, you know, it's interesting that uh, the biblical word, one of the biblical words for freedom is parousia, and it's um, kind of frankness, or well, I guess we would call it freedom, speaking freely, um, is one translation. And uh, I've come to see more and more that those who have religious faith are actually the among the few who are able to speak freely in this climate of intimidation and punishment of any kind of dissent from what is it really is a party line. Yeah, there's probably something to that. Um, you know, I think it's uh, C.S. Lewis talks about the democracy of the ages and uh, where opinions that might be very unpopular in your own age, when you look at them in the scheme of human history, you realize like 99% of people are on my side. And having an appreciation for those patriarchs and the people um, who came before you, uh, I think really allows you to, I don't know, feel like you're backed up by something more than just your opinion. And uh, and that's what I really feel like um, I was doing a lot of conservatives talk about the family being the cornerstone of a healthy society. Um, well, it's not just a platitude like families require policies and opinions and culture in order to thrive. And if you're not going to defend the culture and like the ideas that inform that culture that would allow families to thrive, then just don't even bother saying it. And so I, I do feel like I have basically the whole tradition <laughs> up to, in some ways, 1850 or something, and in other ways, up to 1960 behind me, because um, uh, men and women are different, and society generally has pointed them into slightly different roles, at least, uh, over the course of life, that it's impossible to imagine a, a society surviving over the long haul unless women are interested in being mothers and men are interested in being fathers, and they're interested in marrying one another. And so talking about the roles of men and women in family like has to be done. And, you know, I think feminism has made that topic foreboden. And uh, my experience is supposed to kind of deepen the forebodenness of that particular uh, topic. But I nevertheless, you know, I think know that it's a crucial topic. And our era is the outlier. And uh, I'm not saying anything that Phyllis Schlafly didn't say. <laughs> and that's a good test for that's a good test <laughs> indeed a very formidable woman uh and it, this this 
this dovetails with what you say in the piece that while you're certainly a supporter of academic freedom, you believe in academic freedom, it's not limitless, and that you don't fall back on that as you defend um, the things that you say, um, both in the public fora as well as in the classroom. Instead, as you say, your argument is that uh, these it's a, it's a defense on the basis of truth, not a defense on the basis of procedures, I guess is what I would say. I mean, you might like you and I might be wrong about things, but clearly, you know, given human history and as you say, the um, the pervasiveness of these assumptions over the course of uh, the vast um, sweep of human history, it's certainly something that at least ought to be aired and thought about and talked about in the classroom on its merits, not just because of some abstract notion of academic freedom. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that over the last. Uh, couple decades being an academic, I have become less um, enamored of free speech arguments and more enamored of, you know, like defending what I'm talking about in terms of truth. Like, as you're, like you said, I'm not opposed to free speech, but, you know, we could get, we could have a modern academy that honors free speech, that doesn't cancel professors, and it could still be fundamentally corrupt because it is captured by opinions that are like don't match the world that are unrealistic or that are erroneous and that are never challenged free speech is not enough to do that um and so i think conservatives have lost the universities because we have defended something that is a means and not an end um and another example of that is racial preferences. Like I think racial preferences are bad for universities, but university could still be really corrupt even if they didn't practice racial preferences. What universities are is a, a defender of our civilization. They also defend and try to promote scientific research and stuff, but they are an institution that is supposed to preserve our civilization. And we could have these institutions undermining our civilization, and you know, arguably we do, and still protect free speech. So we should probably start defending the thing we're really about instead of defending you know, something that is not a sideshow, but it's not the centerpiece of what we care about. And uh, that's what I was trying to get at when I didn't exactly poo-poo the free speech thing, but I... I wanted to show that it was a subordinate issue to the issue of defending the civilization. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's very unwise to speak about the right to be wrong. Um, you know, uh, John Henry Newman famously said, error has no rights. Uh, and I think what he meant by that is that we ought not be in, to be in the business of defending error um, and the, the publication and promotion of error, even if... Uh, we we think that procedurally we ought to accommodate error for the sake of um, for the sake of I don't know respect for uh, individual conscience or respect for the foibles of the reasoning process etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But our primary goal ought to be to affirm truth. It seems to me. Um, so I, I agree with you, and I I, I think it's uh, uh, again that doesn't mean that you're opposed to the First Amendment. Um, it only means that you think that the First Amendment is designed to protect something deeper, which is a culture of freedom is really um, warranted 
because it supports a culture of truth. Yeah, I mean, I even go through some examples in there of some people on the left I'd like to cancel. Um, <laughs> it would be kind of nice if Betty Friedan could call a uh, housewife living in a comfortable concentration camp and not be praised, but rather shunned. Like, that's bad. I'm not saying that her life should, you know, she shouldn't be able to get employed or anything like that. But it would be nice if there were some social opprobrium that attached to opinions that are basically uncivilized and dishonoring of essential institutions for any civilization. And so, you know, I tried to complete the circle on that. I think uh, every culture is a kind of cancel culture. There's a limit to what can be said in every political community. And the real problem in ours isn't that we have a cancel culture. It's that we cancel people for defending the civilization and we honor them for undermining it. And uh, I'm looking for an inversion there. Good. Any, as we just any sort of final advice for the young graduate student or professor? Oh, well, my advice for uh, young professors is to play the game, uh, keep your head down, work on David Hume for the first five years of your career, and then uh, work <laughs> on, um, uh, you know, other sanitary topics until you you know, but, but don't let that conquer your mind. And, um, and I also think that there should be a great sorting in academia. Um, I, I would try to get attached to aligned institutions as opposed to most state schools and woke private schools. And uh, I think there's going to be more and more of those popping up. And I think we should become, um, you know, uh, sponsors of them or Um, at least allies of them if we can't work for them. So I'd like to see more of a sorting. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're going to be in one of these institutions, I do think the lesson is to keep your head down and rate and, but always with the purpose of, uh, I think Harvey Mansfield called it raising the Jolly Roger later on in your life. (laughs) And uh, that's certainly what I did. I did not take the advice of people who I, you know, very much respect on this. Um, who, when I was a young professor, told me that I should just, you know, run as Yenner. And I said, I think that's probably a bad idea. And I'm glad I didn't listen um, to those people and uh, that I kept my head down and uh, waited till later. All right. Well, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your courageous voice. And uh, and thanks for this piece, which was, uh, I think a lot of our readership really need to know how how this is done, how people are are unpersoned in, in their professional lives. So thanks a lot. Thanks for unpersoning me, Rusty. <laughs> I'm repersoning Re-personing you. Repersoning me. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs>